Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I am the last unicorn. Are, are they all girls? Mm, no, I think the last unicorn is a girl, but I don't think all unicorns are canonically girls. No, I think I saw one with the beard. I think you're going to say your name was Davedrick or something <laughs> like that. What kind of name is Schmendrick anyway? Sorry, I'm here. I'm here. Dave, I'm here. And I'm the machine. Schmendrick sounds like an awful venereal disease. Can I just say that up front? Is that, is that PC? Am oh, I allowed to say that? Oh, that's an awful case of Schmendrick you're rocking there. <laughs> yeah, I had some Schmedrick once. I got some anointment. It's great. This is a podcast with two boys who discuss movies. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> this is a podcast Clearly. Where a, mm-hmm. uh, this is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. That year just so happens to be 1982. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film The Last Unicorn. In an age of sorcery and savagery. Well, what have we here? <laughs> Demons. No! And dragons. She may be the last unicorn. All I want to know is if you've seen other unicorns like me somewhere in the world. You can find the others if Big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show since, you know, the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. Now, before we get into talking about like our history with this film and talking about the movie itself, we always like to add to our deep and rich fiction of this podcast. The main reason yes. people tune into this show each and every the narrative. week is the, the narrative. narrative that we're mm-hmm. building out. We, of course, are running away from DDS, DDS. Ingenious, ingenious plot device. Ingenious plot device. And I think she's getting closer. I I feel like these helicopters that have been hovering over top of us have something to do with her. I thought you were going to say you can hear the dental drill somewhere (laughs) in the background. (laughs) The horse whinnies, the drill sounds. It's her. But so I'm a little bit nervous about that. But uh, this sauna that I continue to build here as an an addition. It smells disgusting. I don't know if it's just like the wiring I put into this or why is there electricity technology yeah. that uh, the, the robot has actually added into it. You just need rocks. It's making some weird beeps and screeches. Have you noticed yeah. this? Yeah, yeah. They're pretty high pitched mm-hmm. and low pitched at the same time. <laughs> so they just make a general hum, basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty distracting when you're sitting around trying to get your sweat on in the bayou. <laughs> Are we still in the bayou? Yeah, we're bayou adjacent. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous about that, but... Uh, bayou presenting? Yeah. We, <laughs> we'll keep tabs on this. I, I feel like this sauna may become a big deal later on. Oh, nice. May- yeah, that's exciting. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. It's good to have a plan. Why start now? Uh, we also like to do like feedback or news stories at this point. The only thing I think we need to really get into, uh, we forgot to do something twice in a row over the last two weeks, Dave. Do you know what I'm referring to? Obviously not, since we forgot about it. So two weeks ago, we talked about the Dark Crystal. Last week, we talked about the Secret of Nim. (laughs) In both cases... (laughs) Clearly, we enjoyed both films. Just I have no idea, yeah? In in both both cases, cases, uh, those are first-time directors. They were supposed to be adding on to our Ah, first-time directors list on our letterbox. So that was... uh, 
important part of the podcast. It's yes. a super, super important part. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let me just call up my spreadsheet here. We all love spreadsheets here on Kyle and Dave versus the machine. Me, uh, me in particular. Mm-hmm. I, me, I, I particularly love a good spreadsheet. Let's do The Dark Crystal first. Now, technically, this is not the first uh, Jim Henson movie, but this is the first Frank Oz movie. That's why it's going on here. So, better or worse, Dave, than American Beauty? Worse. Right? What? No. Better? Well, you're you're a big fanboy of this movie. I I actually like American Beauty quite a bit. Still, I know that's an unpopular opinion. No, that's what I mean. Dark Crystal goes underneath. Well, I don't understand what you're talking about because you rated American Beauty a 2. And you gave yeah, Dark yeah. Crystal a three. So why sure. are you saying that it's sure. going below? Yeah, but it, we're talking about directing, mm, mm. not direct. I, well, in my mind, you're saying first time directors. Yes. And not better films. But okay. Yeah, sure. Well, you asked the question too. Are they, are they not tied on aggregate score? They are tied on aggregate score. Uh, but clearly I, you want to put it above. What's What's next? Play Misty for me. I like to play Misty for me. So mm-hmm. I did too. I'll, I'll put that above it. Yeah. I definitely put that one above Dark Crystal. The only other one is Smithereens. Yeah, I would put it, for me, I'd put it at the bottom. I mean, it's fun, mm-hmm. but... Uh, All right, well, well, you put it here first, folks. Dave hates puppets, so... <laughs> I don't know if that's an unpopular uh, problem, because uh, marionettes are gross, man. They're Who's like mines. marionettes? There's like one time a marionette shows up and it's like, well, this movie is garbage. Uh, uh, no, uh, the movie centers around marionettes. Mm. Yes. You actually watch a marionette for the entire Marionettes film. need strings. So technically you're incorrect. <laughs> fine. Fine. Secret of Nim. Wooden puppets. It only ties with a new leaf. I'll the movie you hated. A new leaf. Yeah. I really didn't enjoy my time with Walter Matthew. I don't know if I made that clear, but uh, me and Walter Walther. Walther? Walter. Walter cares. We don't get along that well. I think we just need to watch more Walter Matthau movies because there has to be something for the fact that he was like in the top 10 box office draws for many, many years. There's nobody else? <laughs> there was Paul Newman. There's other big people. You're saying that Walter Matthau outsold Paul Newman? If you look at the aggregate, I think there is a stretch of time, yes, that he was. Oh, gross. That's why America's broken. <laughs> all right. The well, signs but- were all there, man. The signs were all there. We'll put it, we'll put it there. So that just means that now... Uh, we have, uh, let's see, Dark Crystal is going into the new num- number 12 position. Oh, and the secret name is going in the new number 13 position. So they're kind of like right there with each other. I'm glad you remembered. Dave, we should talk about our history with this film. First up, if you did not notice who directed this, who directed this movie, it was, I have to say, a surprise to be reminded of this. This is a Rankin and Bass joint who did Blank. literally every Christmas special you can think of. Red, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, like literally all those stop, stop oh, motion the stuff. Oh, Claymation one? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. They did The Hobbit, they did uh, yeah. Return of the King, the two animated features through the 70s. Didn't like them. How about, uh, but how about the Christmas Pass. features? Pass. Oh, come on. <laughs> the Island of Misfit Toys. This is like a seminal moment in my childhood. Jesus Christ. Have you watched them recently? They're no, fucking I'm sure terrible. they don't hold up. But they did the Frosty. They did Santa Claus is Coming to Town. They did Like, I know, like, things. we watch Elf. It's parodied. And I know that's an important part of a lot of people's childhood experience. But I actually never liked them. God, jeez. It's so hard sometimes to do this podcast, Dave, because you're such a hater of everything. I like stuff. Yeah. I, I like good stuff. Do you? Yeah. Do yeah. you? Well, stuff that's good. I like what I like. 
right? Yeah, which is a very narrow set of things. Have a very specific set of skills, Kyle. I will say this. I have not watched that uh, animated Hobbit or Return of the King. Uh, They're not, not good. I should say, this is where it gets weird. I didn't even know Reagan and Bass did not do the animated Lord, Lord of the Rings. They only did The uh, Hobbit okay. and Return of the King. Ralph Bakshi did The Lord of the Rings. So Why do you know things like this? Okay. Because I yeah. took some time because I was like, wait a second. They didn't direct the, the third one that came out around the same time. And no, no, it's a completely different yeah. company, completely different person, even though they look exactly the same animation wise. Yeah. All right. Good. Mm -hmm. Good to know. Those Christmas features, though, I did. I grew up with them. I liked, I remember having fond memories of the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special that I watched many, many years in a row. Mm. Um, I mean, as far as Christmas specials go, as far as animation specials go, How the Grinch Stole Christmas was, I think, a far better short cartoon with Boris Karloff doing his thing and uh the music's great and uh but we're not talking I think about that's that the thing. i grew up you know i grew up lunchtime spider-man and looney tunes mm -hmm. uh Loon i think Lo uh, and not, yeah i think the warner brothers stuff was actually after i got home from school so even at that age the claymation rudolph just felt i didn't feel that connection mm -hmm. i liked rudolph and as soon as you learn some of the boyish uh, revisions of that song Right? You sing it a lot, but uh, Claymation, eh. All right. Well, what's your history with this movie? <laughs> I don't know. I, I know I've seen it, but I couldn't tell you why or when. I do know that I didn't like it, mm. but honestly, it's all kind of a haze. Um, so, I don't actually have a good answer for that, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't actually know why I know about it. I have a weird memory of this movie. I know we had the VHS in our home. Like, I know for sure we had the VHS. I don't have any very clear memories of actually watching this movie but i okay. must have if we had the vhs at our home but it, this was definitely not something that i was in the rewatch pile it was definitely not something that i was like obsessed with in the way for instance like little mermaid uh beauty sure. and the beast even sleeping beauty I had a really big love affair of sleeping beauty growing up so uh this was not on one of those like rewatch 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 that i would get into growing up yeah we'll we'll talk about why i guess in a second but i'm not surprised by that it's uh it, i remember it having a unique look and it, it was very different looking than i would say most 80s american animation had at the time even japanese i mean we'll talk about that too but yeah mm -hmm. uh, i don't know it has its own look and it's very old when i started working at the bookstore one of my first like real person jobs in my early 20s that's when i kind of discovered that this was also a book the Last Unicorn, mm. and is in some schools a suggested reading, like something that students oh, really? can choose to read. It was oh, a perennial okay. bestseller. Like people would come in and buy this book a lot. And there's a deep love affair for the book itself. I have to be one of those people. I've never read it. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know. <laughs> what yeah. it looks like. But it is still, uh, to this day, considered one of the best fantasy novels of all time. Like it always shows up on like if they have the 100 best or 50 best, more often than not, you're going to see this book listed as one of those seminal works of fantasy literature. I would say I can I can understand that. Oh, yeah. I mean the yeah, roots of the storytelling in this as a fantasy novel would be very good. Mm -hmm. So uh, on the presumption that we've already seen it, it is not that surprising to me. I mean from what I know it's it's your basic fantasy novel of you know, they're on a quest, they meet some random weirdos, and they get together <laughs> and, you know, vanquish the evil person. Like that's basically what most fantasy yeah. novels are. I mean, if you're going to have a fantasy about anything, mm -hmm. it would be exactly that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
We just need to find a couple more widows and then we can start our quest. In a way, I always consider Christopher Lee the evil wizard. Like, that's just what pops into my mind if I think of, like, evil man. Even though yeah. apparently he was very nice. But still, it's, it's the Christopher voice. Lee is who I think of. And it's his whole career, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if he designed it or the industry did. I think it was a bit of both. I yeah. Again, I keep bringing them up, but Scream Scene, we've had both hosts, uh, husband and wife team, Sarah and Ben, on as guests here on this show. They're currently in the 1950s, ending off the 1950s, okay. which is when Christopher Lee got his start and doing just a bunch of horror films. When you think of like, hey, we need some like gaunt, horrific looking man. <laughs> oh, well, there's Christopher Lee right there. Exceptionally <laughs> powerfully deep mm-hmm. and th- theatric voice. It was only occasionally he would be like the good guy. Like he was cast as um, Sherlock Holmes in a couple of movies. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, I can kind of see that. I can see that. Because Sherlock Holmes is weird. But there's also a reason why... He has portrayed Count Dracula more times than any other person on film. <laughs> like, it's just like, yeah, you're a vampire. Of course you are. <laughs> he probably is. He lived pretty fucking long, right? Was he like yeah. in his 90s and when he passed away? Yeah. My other favorite fun fact, you can go look it up. It's on YouTube. He did release in his 70s, I think, a metal album. A metal album. So that's right. go listen to that. Yeah, if you I haven't heard to. it. Yeah, I haven't heard it. Just insert a clip now. And you can be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like Sauron. Yeah, like all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Wow. Wow. All right. Well, I'm excited to jump back into this movie for the first time in many, many years. Me and Dave are going to go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we're going to be talking a little bit more about The Last Unicorn. If you were like the last human, what would you do? What's the the first thing you would do? I'd just lay down and die. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everyone. (laughs) I don't know. The world is your oyster. You You would do anything you want. There's no oysters. What are you going to eat? Where are you going to go? Who do you talk to? You you know the stats about solitary confinement, right? I mean, it literally makes you crazy because we are social beings. You can't be by yourself for a prolonged period in my fiction every human has just kind of disappeared so you have like so many grocery stores with just chips they're just there for the taking who's running the grocery stores <laughs> you can just smash Your open doesn't make sense. You, let's be more pragmatic you giving up yeah. way before you need to give up oh well, you just die yeah i go house to awful. house and just steal food i don't know what, why are we talking about this why did we bring this up it's a color to ease into the ad read segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported, the Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, I get to tell you, I get to tell you about Connect First Credit Union. And by that, I mean that we have an audio clip that we're going to throw to so they can tell you about credit unions. Do you ever feel like just a number, a digit, a denominator, a decimal, another cog in the big bank machine, waiting on hold, online, never on time, and always on your dime? Like your worth is only calculated by your net worth. In a world full of numbers, it's nice to know there's a place where you're not one. Connect First Credit Union. Bank on a brighter future. 
Thank you, Connect First Credit Union. That was an illuminating piece of audio. Ooh. Dave, what do you yeah. have for me? Shining the light of knowledge onto something. I've got Alberta Blue Cross, Kyle. Alberta Blue Cross. Even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, actually, Kyle, this sounds like you now, you are calm and collective. When your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross, your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online anytime on any device. What about like a hand blender? I still have this Zoom. Am I am able to use that? <laughs> Making it easier for them and for you. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. All right, well, we have just sat down and watched The Last Unicorn after many, many years. Dave, let's uh, let's think of a scenario here. Let's say that we, you know, you've taken your family to the zoo and you're looking at all of the beasties behind bars because Harpies. you're cruel uh -huh. and enjoy to watch animals uh, locked up. Suffer. Yeah, who doesn't? And then a random stranger just tears away. This random kid just tears away from their parents because they see you. And they're like, wow, this doofus will know. And he holds in his hands my copy of The Last Unicorn. Somehow he stole the, the VHS, VHS copy of okay. The Last Unicorn. Okay. Probably the last VHS copy of The Last Unicorn. <laughs> I was like, yeah. please, sir, tell me. Please, sir, may I have another? What is this movie about? What would you say? What's the plot of The Last Unicorn? Hmm, what is the plot of The Last Unicorn? First of all, kid, mind your own goddamn business. I was pretty busy here <laughs> looking at this I've trapped elephant. I've been the over here, okay? I was always sad. Uh, there's a place in Ontario called American African Lion Safari, and uh, they have, I mean, they're under a lot of fire because they're uh, tortured circus animals yeah. that have been there's relegated toothless to space. lions and everything wandering but around. But you, I remember when we were young, Helen and I went there, and the elephants perform for you because they're used to Gross. being performing, right? Mm -hmm. So they would like bow, and it was, it was fucking creepy. I would say that this movie's about a unicorn who believes they are the last of their kind mm -hmm. and goes on a journey to discover what happened to the rest of her buddies. That's basically it. Yeah, I would say that that's pretty close to what happens. Also, it's not for kids. So, you know, oh, don't fucking watch it. Why yeah. are we having this, this argument every week? <laughs> Dave, here's the but thing. But how old is this kid? How old is this kid that's got the VHS copy? Oh, he's like 12. All right, 12's okay. Yeah, you could watch it for 12. I think whether or not a child of 2022 enjoys this is irrelevant to the fact that this was advertised and marketed towards kids in 1982. Well, there's also a reason why you can't remember watching it mm. in spite of thinking that you owned it. Well, I mean, I was born in 1983. I mean, I was, I was so past this. This is like an old movie for me. <laughs> so. Ah, <laughs> uh, all right, let's keep going. So lay it on me. Here, I'm going to cross my arms. I'm going to preemptively cross my arms. I'm already crossing my arms. What it's did you great. think of The Last this Unicorn, Dave? Be all mean about it. Well, I certainly liked it less than you did, Mr. Four Stars on Letterboxd. I, you know, it's interesting. Like we kind of alluded to at the beginning, I think the story is really good. It would make a good yeah. book. You know, like a classic fantasy novel. I, I think the adventures staged and framed reasonably well. But, you know, from a purely mechanical standpoint, I found the animation a little jarring. It, it mm -hmm. didn't really feel fluid to me. So, it's hard to kind of get into. I think the story is good enough. That's how you could tell the story is good, that I could watch it in its entirety and not have to take breaks or uh, do some deep sighing. But it's not, it's not a nice 
watch. Um, I also found it interesting that all the voice actors are maybe not at that time would all become A-listers. Well, I would say that most of them were already say, famous. If they weren't A-listers at that time, they were at least B-plus listers. Let's put it yeah. that way. Like they were not unknown people. Mia Farrow, Christopher Lee, Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Alan Arda. All, uh, no, Alan so Arkin. Arkin, which Alan Arkin, sorry, not uh, whatever the other guy's not name. Not Hawkeye, no. I did find the voice acting weak for me. I don't know what it was. I think it was, maybe it's like they didn't tie the animation correctly and so they were trying to cue their voices to the movement of a pre-animated uh, mouth. I, oh, I, anyways, possibly. Yeah, that, that actually might be true. I, I actually don't know the mechanics of how the voice acting versus the animation works. To me, even though this does sometimes happen nowadays, what this truly felt like is that nobody was ever in the same room yes. when they recorded their lines. That's kind yeah. of what it feels like to me. That's exactly how this podcast is created. So there, there's that awkwardness. So I, I was a little bit balancing between whether I was going to stay engaged with it. This is actually how I feel about that 70s Hobbit. I love the story of the Hobbit, but I find the animation almost unwatchable. And mm. the other problem I, I find with particularly this era of animated films is, you know, the classic idea in anime was to use reasonably generic faces so that you would project characters sure. onto the ones on the screen. But with American animation in particular, I know this is, you're going to tell me that this was uh, outsourced animated. to a Japanese animation company, but that the character designs are not in a classical sort mm. of 80s anime style. And so what you get with uh, such, what's the right word, specific characterizations of the face, is you get a little bit of that 60s Spider-Man feel where they oh, have sure. trouble animating correctly. Like their faces have weird angles and if they turn, all of a sudden the perspective's distorted. So it just felt felt middling to me. I, I, I didn't hate it. And I, I think the story is beautiful. It's just, you know, I, I don't think I'd watch it again, mm. ever. Yeah. I definitely resonated a lot with this movie. After having watched it now, unless, you know, maybe my parents or my sister can correct me. I don't think I did watch this movie when I was a kid because there's nothing about this that's like, no, there's, there's no like no memory. memory that's jumping up at this. I think I just had seen the cover to the VHS. I really, truly do not think I've ever actually sat down and watched this movie. <laughs> I really do think this is the first time I've ever sat down and actually watched it. What's fascinating is that I don't necessarily disagree with anything you just said. I think it's one of those things where I like it, despite acknowledging that it has flaws. It, it's one of those things where I think the story is just pulling me along enough that I don't really care. How it's acted, how it looks, how it's shot. Well, I, see, I like the <laughs> how way it, it exists as a film. No, I, I do like the way it looks, actually. I do actually like the way it's conceived. Mm. I will admit, yes, or agree, that the animation is jerky, right? You can tell this is cheaper animation than, say, Secret of Nim Secret from Nim. last week, yeah. right? Where it was super fluid, very much in that Disney style. The man hours that went into making that movie, you, you can see up on the screen. This one is probably was pushed through a lot quicker on the animation side. It was probably given to Japan and Japanese artists specifically to save money and costs is what I'm guessing is probably what they were doing. To be part of a well-oiled machine. I was going to save this until later, but I mean, it is interesting to know that the people who worked on this would eventually work with uh, Miyazaki on Nausicaa or Nausicaa. Animators, not the creators. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The animators to this yeah. one. And then they would all kind of, or most of them would get together to make Studio Ghibli. So like this is leading towards that 
eventual endpoint. I would say I don't think all of the voice acting is off. I think a lot They're of it not is bad yes. individually, but like you said, there's yeah. no cohesion in the yeah. script. I think or, the, uh, in the performance. I should think actually like uh, Alan Arkin and Christopher Lee do the best job. I really didn't like Alan Ar- 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 Arkin. And then there's a very small um, guess, we'll say cameo of Rene Aubergenois, <laughs> who is known for uh, uh, French, some French films, but is also the um, chef in The Little Mermaid who sings that song, ah. who's like trying to catch him. He's the skull <laughs> or the like, skeleton at the very end. Right, so that right, was right. fun to hear him yeah, yeah, as a voice. Yeah. I thought you were going to bring up your he- heroine. Angela Lansbury as the witch. Yeah, Angela Lansbury is good, good. and, and yeah. her like small little. That's a thing. Like, to have Angela Lansbury a... in this movie and not have her sing seems like a crime to me, but that's beside the point. <laughs> Jesus, fanboy. I am a fanboy. She's boy. good in it. You know, that's the thing. If you isolate even Mia Farrow, who uh, if you just isolate certain scenes of the voice act, they're not all of them do a good job inside of their characters, but for some reason. As a narrative, it's just so awkward. Like, I'd, actually, you put it best. I don't think they were ever in the same room. I don't think they were interplaying with each other no, I don't because think they so. just had to sync to whatever the mouth movement was right. and it was stitched together. Jeff Bridges' Prince, like, it was just, especially when he came on. I love Jeff, Jeff Bridges. Yeah, he's got a great voice for animation, but he's just such a weird shoehorned. It felt like shoehorned. I, it's, it's very, like, whether this was a directing choice, his choice, I don't know. His, his performance is so subdued. And you're right, like, he does have a voice that could work very well for animation if he was oh, allowed yeah. to actually perform and act it many many years later there's a animated a cg animated movie called surfs up if you've ever seen that movie with, with the, the penguins, penguin where he's basically playing the dude from the big lebowski but it's like oh yeah no, like his voice absolutely deserves to be in this animated oh, yeah. movie so i think it's just a matter of the director not helping him any yeah well you know that's just like uh your opinion man if they did this pixar disney style in the modern they were all in a sound booth together and then they would change the animation to match mm-hmm. the the mouth movements for the actual dialogue this movie would have been a hundred times better regardless of how the style turned out but it's hard to watch a movie where you're watching a conversation and it stutters mm-hmm. and it kind of has these little weird breaks and all of a sudden the characters are doing something way out of i don't know it's just yeah i don't know it's okay i don't know i think it's just the the nature of the fantasy itself it, it really you you know what movie this kind of reminds me of as far as tone goes? But it reminds me a lot of Lady Hawk. Have you ever seen the movie Lady mm, Hawk with Matthew Broderick? With Matthew Broderick and yeah. uh, the glorious Michelle Pfeiffer. That's right. I've recently watched it and I don't think that holds up all that no. well personally. But that's what the feeling to this movie feels like. There's a little bit of darkness to it and the magic that's there. I just found there to be, I don't know, a lot of beauty into this. Being the music guy that I am. Some of the songs from America, which why they decided to pair America with this movie, I don't know. But it's a songs are terrible. It's a bizarre enough choice that sort of works in some cases. In a lot of cases, it doesn't. I I don't think some of the music actually works. But the final final song that the unicorn sings, I think, is actually pretty beautiful. I think it works really really well. Uh, when she's a princess, like when she's uh, there's that one with the princess, but there's the final final song that kind of kicks in over the end credits. That I oh, think oh, actually she's works. running in the field. Yeah. Okay. Which is, which is, as I think you texted me the other night, it's like, is it considered a musical if they're literally telling you what's happening on screen? I'm like, well, well true enough. I, I think but. it's the way that it's animated, you know, like mm-hmm. they pull up a sunrise and they're like, the sun is rising. And they're like, there's a bird flying left to right. And you're like, yeah, I know. I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> the man is wearing a leather tunic. Anyway, I, don't, like, I don't know. Is this important? Oh, nothing metaphorical is no. And that I, might be the animator's fault. Like, I don't know what comes... Again, mm-hmm. maybe they put the cart before... Is that the right one? Cart before the horse, yeah. you know? There's something about the way this is constructed that 
Uh, but overall, I don't know. I think I, the narrative just pulled me through. So all these things that like, yes, I can absolutely agree that there's this is not a perfect home run movie. There's some things that hold it back. But I like being inside this world. It was a fun little ride. It's it's a bit dark. It's there's some good jokes that kind of come up based on, on human or on uh, based on character. I love the way the Red Bull looks. I think that uh, yeah, it's good uh, even the animation from the the, the uh, unicorns running out from the sea at the very end works yeah. works well for me. I don't know what more to say other than it's like it has worked for me. I, I I really enjoyed my time watching The Last Unicorn. Uh, I do think, and I would like to prove this theory, I bet you anything I would like the book better. I bet you anything oh, if I read the sure. book, I would be like, oh, yeah, Absolutely. yeah, this, this works so much better as an internal narrative. Well, we got that comment on YouTube about Sophie's Choice. I think anytime you adapt anything into a film, you're kind of like gambling a bit, mm-hmm. you know, condensing a medium in which you can spend time to build up a specific scene as long as you want. If it takes three chapters to get to a mini climax within a narrative, you know, you have the freedom more or less, depending on who your editor is, to kind of get to that point. But with a film, especially this thing's what, less than 90 minutes, I think the actual narrative- Yeah, it's 88 or something, 87. You got to push pretty hard to get all of the beats in there. So I will say that this was adapted by the author of the book, so I think that's why I think the narrative maybe works better than Secret of Nim from last week, where it's like, ooh, this these things seems off because they were just adding things that didn't happen in the book at all. Yeah, that's right. But I've been thinking about adaptation a lot here recently, I think because of these two movies back to back. But I also, for the very first time, watched Stanley Kubrick's Lolita this week. Oh, I still have never watched that, I don't think. Is that Peter Sellers? Yeah, Peter and, Sellers. Uh, I actually did not know Peter Sellers was in it until like oh. the credits came. I'm like, oh, Peter Sellers is in this movie? He's not the main character, but he's uh, a side character that's very important. Not to make this uh, about Lolita too much here, but Lolita is considered, one, one of the best books that uh, Vladimir Nemokov ever wrote, but also unfilmable because everything happens inside the character's head and you have to kind of understand what he's writing is actually not true. So you get to that mm. point partway through the book. It's like he's deluded himself into thinking that she's seducing him when that is not what's happening. He's made this huge story out of nothing. You could say that about nearly every heterosexual man. Well, true enough. But the, the unfortunate part of it, when you <laughs> adapt that for a visual medium, you have to take internal thoughts and make them external mm-hmm. visual representations. And it doesn't work because now it's like, well, we innately want to sympathize with this character that we're spending the most time with here on screen and this is during the haze code so you can't actually show or say what they're doing so it's this weird adaptation where they're they kind of skirt around what is actually happening between those two characters even though the movie end up not sympathizing with them you're not supposed to be like like the character but there is an innate sympathy you have just for him being the protagonist of the movie that just kind of makes it fall apart i actually ended up liking parts of it actually peter Sellers is i think fantastic in the movie as a creepo but uh but kind of oh, always creepy isn't he i mean we learned he's kind of creepy in his real life well too. yes peter Sellers is so creepy in his real life that he <laughs> refused to ever act like himself he never mm-hmm. wanted to do it because there was nothing there he was always per- portraying a character did they remake lolita with jeremy irons they did Remember in the th- 90s that was adrian yeah. line who did that okay. who did a bunch of uh, who did a flash dance and a bunch yeah. of those types of movies so it's probably not good uh i bring that up as an example whereas this one i think this can work better as an adaptation yes you're gonna lose some of it 
but it is so plot driven rather than internal monologues thinking about it that you can at least hit the beat and be like, okay, well, this is at least a close approximation of The Last Unicorn. Whereas Lolita is like, yeah, like you've hit some of the things, but because nothing really happens in Lolita as far as like plot stuff, it's a boring movie for half of that movie because it's like there's nothing happening, all internal monologue, and that's basically unfilmable. And mm. Kubrick found that out <laughs> after he did it. So. Yeah, interesting. I mean, we've kind of touched on this so many times, but film, cinema, this visual medium, I mean, you could stretch those to painting and, and photography and that line between realism and fantasy is so hard to project clearly. And I think that at the very least with still imagery or sculpture, you can frame it because it's like an individual moment, but film in particular, because it's like a, a narrative through some space of time. I mean, it's, it's really hard to kind of straddle both. I mean, even in our little writing project, conceptualizing the idea of whether we stay in quote unquote reality is mm -hmm. very hard to do because uh, I don't know, what does that even mean? You get into this weird metaphysical thing, like if you're talking about a book, uh, a movie that's happening in their head, I'm, what does that even mean? <laughs> it's fucking strange. Mm -hmm. Last Unicorn and Secret of Nim and Dark Crystal, I think work on that level because at least with animation, uh, you can twist things pretty sure. weird and still maintain some semblance of uh, of a story. It's actually something that I'm, I'm so curious about why more people don't want to use animation to tell fantasy stories. I, I don't know if it's, again, still an American thing or a North American thing where it's like animation is still considered a children's medium. That's changing. It's, it's changing a I, lot. I, but... I get that. And I know that with the success of Lord of the Rings, I think everyone just pushed like, oh, if we're going to adapt this, we need to put this into live action and we need to have real people well, there. But animation think... does allow you to give a little bit more of that surrealism and you can accept it more because it's already surreal because you're watching animated figures walk around walk around a screen. We haven't researched this, but my intuitive experience of this is that one of the biggest problems in America is that American animation just wasn't good enough. Mm. And even if you look at uh, anime and Japanese animating culture in the 80s, it's also kind of on par with this. It's, it's yeah. still very rough and raw, but they had a concerted effort because a lot of their mythology is very, it's very fantastical. I mean, they have believed their emperor is a direct descendant of a sun goddess, you know, <laughs> like their entire uh, perception of reality is fundamentally different than in North America. North America's got this weird industrial pragmatic realism. Everything's got to be couched in some kind of mathematical formula. So the idea of having a human being act as a human being is very important or had been. But as the 80s turned into 90s and this anime culture really, I mean, you watch even stuff from the late 80s, people are starting to act and look like people, at least in a narrative sense, as that seeped into American culture. We're seeing, I mean, that's where Pixar and all this stuff comes from. It's, it works. I wanted to actually bring that up specifically within regards to this movie. This is really this amalgamation of American creators, like coming up with the dialogue, the, the scripting, that sort of thing, and the Japanese company coming in and doing the animation for it. But I still feel like it is this kind of like amalgamation of Japanese sensibilities and American plotting, which I think is why I also kind of like it. It's this kind of two different forces coming together mm -hmm. to create this thing. But anime specifically was becoming a far bigger thing throughout the 80s. Because I remember going to the video store and like, uh, well, it was HMV for me out here in the West. So that was where you got your albums and, and videos yeah. and, and all those things. If you're, if you're buying them, yeah. If you're going to buy them. They're gone now in case the youngest don't understand what we're talking about. But yeah. there used there was this growing section of 
Japanimation is what mm. they would call it, right? And that was where you found that. It's like, oh, I want to get all the seasons of Astro Boy. And I want to look at these right. films by by Miyazaki, who was making films and was becoming a bigger name at that time. And uh, my parents said, no. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it took me until it's my- It's going to turn you Asian. Until like my early 20s before I saw most of that stuff. Yeah, if you track how their animation- evolved it's it's fantastic if you try to look at old astro boy or dragon ball it's like this but the philosophy around character design in anime is fundamentally different yeah. than american and that's one of the holdbacks for me in anime in an uh, american animation everything's got to be so like distorted and unique to each character that it's very it makes it very difficult to animate. I don't think there's anything wrong with that idea. You know, of course, if we have an anime version of ourselves, we don't want Kyle and Dave to look exactly the same, except one guy has blonde hair. And that would be you, of course. But I think it was important in the 80s that the Japanese animation groups were like, this is just going to make it easier for us to mm -hmm. have a standard emoting. So we still have character design, but we don't have to worry about like, as you turn the perspective, having this face all of a sudden looks super flat, like in this movie. It's very strange. Well, actually, like, well Two things that pop up from there. One, that is actually a common criticism I hear from people who don't really enjoy anime. It's like, they all look the same. I can't tell who anyone is because they all look the same. Racist. So there's, <laughs> there's that. I'm just joking. But I also remember this story from The Simpsons and how very, very rarely would they ever show them like front facing, like shooting oh, okay. them from the front because they thought like, oh, it's a bit too grotesque to see these characters like dead on. Flat. Yeah. Showing it's always profile or three quarters of the way sort of thing. If they ever move their heads too quickly, you would see this weird animation that they had to yeah, make for that to, to work that properly because yeah. of the perspective changes and stuff like that. So it's something they actually struggled with in the first few seasons of that show. Like, how do we actually animate these oh, characters in different ways? Yeah, yeah, in Simpsons, the first three or four seasons, I mean, it almost starts off hand drawn. I think it did, yeah. and then it just took a while for it to evolve. I suspect. They use a lot of computers now, but... Now they do, yeah, yeah. More hand-drawn computer animation, please. I mean, that innovation is there in American animation culture. You're talking about Secret of Nim and, you know, using lighting. And, and you could tell in this one, they didn't they didn't put that much energy into it. There no. are parts where the unicorn would turn its head and, you know, it's, it's just what it is. But the animals in this, because I find anime, they put their characterizations in non-human things. And one of the things about anime that's so important is uh, that's inverse from American animation. Because they don't spend so much time with wrinkles and distortions on the skin, the backdrops are always fucking paintings. Man. Right. They're, they're gorgeous. So even if you watch the cheap like Speed Racer, mm -hmm. uh, which is I think mid-70s or whatever. So it's got a 60s Spider-Man, Batman feel, but it's very uh, well constructed. They're, it's important to set an environment in that culture, whereas uh, up till probably Pixar, American animation, you don't see that. It's it's pretty, they just kind of sketch something out and they just focus so much on whether a person, like in this, the opening scene with the hunter, oh, it's almost grotesque, right? They got these guys and their faces drooping and, you know, they, they speak a certain way. That could work. And it does work now because we've gotten a lot better. We've merged animation techniques, but in the 80s, it's, uh, it's starting, it's trying, it's trying to grow. And uh, it wasn't working for me in this movie. Definitely in the late 80s into the 90s, because of the Disney renaissance that was going on, it, they really did crowd out really any other company trying to do 
animation specifically. Then there was Pixar, who was doing something completely different. They weren't even interested in trying to do the hand-drawn style. And until um, DreamWorks and Katzenberg goes over there and makes Shrek, which is also 3D, and forces Disney to be like, okay, we're going to abandon hand-drawn animation. There really wasn't other companies making animation Shrek's through most of the yeah. 90s that I can recall that like broke through. At least not major studios. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Outside of North America, or sorry, inside North America is what I'm trying to say. Um, yes, there's things from around the world. Uh, so it's interesting to me to see the early 80s here. We have like Dom Bluth, we have Rankin and Bass. There's movies that uh, the machine is not going to have us watch, but again, are all these interesting, like they're really trying to push the form of animation and what can be accepted in the mainstream audience in North America. And what happens is that Disney comes out and is like, what about princesses again? And then that's what makes them go off and like crush the competition. Well, Disney is interesting too. Again, we're not animation historians. So I don't know if this is uh, factually accurate. The successful Disney films take this idea and make sure that the environment they're couched in is ultra realistic. So even if you watch the princess films, they're not throwaway environments with really well animated characters. It's kind of like trying to balance both. And when they do the throwaway we see in 71, there's just something rushed and kind of like cheap feeling about it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. But I don't know if there's that much intent <laughs> to drown out independent companies. I think they were just learning the lessons of both. You know, they would watch Secret of Nim. They're like, oh, you know what? This world looks really lived in, even if it's dark. Can we incorporate that somehow into uh, a fairy tale? But we also pander to the Sunday afternoon uh, viewing crowd on TV. So we got to make sure the princesses are not uh, tearing their eyeballs out and have, you know, getting cursed for boils with witches. We're going to make them cutesy and everybody have fun. I, so. I think what is also fascinating is the gender dynamics that are on display here and who watches these films and who responds to them. Mm. Fantasy, while the predominant caricature is like neckbeard male, is actually driven mostly by females. If you actually look at the data. Like the audience? Yeah. So if you look at who really? buys the most fantasy novels, it's women. Oh, okay. Like, uh, like Terry Kine and Tolkien and stuff, it, there's a larger audience of women reading them well i don't know about those titles in particular i'm just talking if we talk take all fantasy fiction it's usually mm -hmm. women who are who are reading more of it i'm bringing this up because this is again not i think this movie in particular because it is a female unicorn um i think that ties into feeling like oh like i feel alone and i feel like i'm the only one around here and stuff like that but when you go on that run of the renaissance of disney again you go Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, uh, Pocahontas, all those types of things, right? These are massive movies. They get huge box office. And what Disney decides to do at that point is like, hmm, but what if we could make a movie that little boys wanted to come to? Because <laughs> they didn't want to come across as something just for, for little girls. And like, this thing is fascinating, the, those gender dynamics, that they don't want to be looked at as like, well, we can't cater to women. That can't well, be well, the thing that we do. To that, what, like, so what was the next project? What was the project that was focused on boys Hercules i'm just trying to think of is the big one that, oh, that, that was after predominantly what they were making that movie for and then we get into like titan ae which is don bluth again and uh, treasure planet and um pretty all, that, all that stuff that was in the early 2000s that nearly tanked the the company tarzan yeah interesting but i think you have to really market towards one or the other i think what they don't realize is that hey boys can also accept that it's a princess and they can follow her journey and also you can make a movie like aladdin or something like that the girls can also feel like they uh, are a part of as well i don't think you need to be like oh we have to market only towards one or the other good stories are good stories no matter what the what the gender actually is
I wonder how much of that we interpret in hindsight. I, I have no idea, right? Like you said, there's probably people who have studied this, but how intentional is that marketing? You know, if you're conceptualizing uh, the little, oh yeah, those are good examples. Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast is a 50-50. Aladdin's kind of more a boy protagonist, but the princess is quite strong-willed, which mm-hmm. is great. Lion King's boys. Yeah. It's only boys in that movie. Yeah, yeah the, these are interesting things. We need a... We'd need an animation historian, especially what we brought up last week, um, the counterculture animation in, in the States in particular, where we're getting pornography and we're getting yeah. weird, like, uh, yeah, rock and roll things. That's all existing underneath. So yeah, it's, it's hard to whole... evaluate American animation just by the ones that break through into the public consciousness. I don't know enough about uh, what was happening under the cracks. This is going to sound like I'm super anti-capitalist, which I mean, I'm semi-anti-capitalist, but I mean... <laughs> We were t- we took so long in 1971, right? We we had an entire season in 1971, and I think the arc of history is this, right? We have the end of the Hayes Code, and uh, American filmmakers and the studio, sorry, and the studios are collapsing, and so you have a, this huge group of what they call New Hollywood. And they're like, okay, finally, this is what we've been trying to do for a long, long time. We've had to skirt around all these censorship boards. We can now catch up to Europe, who could do whatever they wanted to for like the last three decades uh, and or longer. And we're going to push this as far as we can possibly take it. And you, I think, are saying that they pushed too far, but they pushed it as far as they possibly could. Animation included, because, you know, you do get, you know, Fritz the Cat and like this pornographic type of filmmaking, but in animation. And that goes and goes and goes. And then we have basically this one-two punch in 75 and 77, where blockbuster filmmaking, specifically in the summer, comes out and this makes so much money that studios are like, oh, well, why don't we just make that? <laughs> And keep making that. And so the reins start to be pulled in, pulled in, pulled in. And uh, I think possibly because the, the nation was there. I'm talking about America with the ascension of Ronald Reagan. Things become far conservative in the 80s. And we're like, yeah, we'll get you, let you go a certain amount of way. But you still have to play within our rules here. And you start to see that even more over the 90s and stuff like that. Of like, There's extreme content, quote unquote, but it's because it's making the money. That's the only reason they allow it is because it's making the money. I mean, I always struggle with this idea of capitalism as a sentient being. I mean, it's reactive. It looks exactly like the Red Bull, actually, from this movie. We talk about, uh, you know, the 70s and these challenging films and auteurism and uh, people trying to get that angst of the 60s out onto mm-hmm. visual mediums. And I think that's happening. Uh, but there's a reason why people paid more money to watch Jaws than they did to go to the theater and watch what was the most popular, like, let's say Sweetback or something that was very challenging, but still actually made some money, which is fascinating. Or, or like um, Flash Picture Show. Yeah, right. Even though that was a top 10 movie, it is like making yeah. a 20th of what Jaws made a few years this later. This is why I, I really want to see attendance numbers more than gross income. I just, I want to know... I don't know what the population is, 71 of the United States, but let's say it's 250 million people or whatever. You know, how many people actually physically saw the last picture show as opposed to how much money did it make versus how many human beings went and paid a ticket to go see Jaws, even if it's multiple times? Because I think that's more a reflection of where culture has been going. And of course, there are so many external pressures on that. that we learned the FBI's insipid control over American thought uh, through the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But it's not that Reagan changed it. People voted for Reagan. <laughs> when you well, look at the I'm stats, I'm not even saying that it was fucking scary. coerced. It's like people were ready to accept that. People um, wanted it, you know? So, so it's not capitalism. It's There's something different. There's something about the culture. They wanted this conservative flashback. I wonder if 
again, maybe by pushing too far, there's a reaction. You know, it's this- It's um, ebb and flow for sure. Yeah. I can't go back to the 70s, but if we go to 1995, okay. the average ticket price was $4.35. That's what I remember paying. Yeah. Four bucks. And there was 1.2 billion tickets sold. Okay. That's the total of the- Total okay. number of tickets sold versus, well, it's unfair to do 2021. Uh, let's do 2019, which you have basically the same amount of tickets sold. It's 1.2 billion, same but your ticket price is $9.16, so it's doubled in price. But here's the thing, population is growing. Yes. So the percentage of people watching theater uh, is movies decreasing. is shrinking. Yes. And they're just paying more. So then do we hold value to a billion dollars? But more theaters are being built too, which actually exacerbates the problem. Because if you have more it's, theaters it's being weird, built, right? it's the same amount of people going, that means there's less people in each of those theaters. So I like, yeah, Top Gun. And I mean, I really like Top Gun Maverick or Avengers, whatever these billion dollar films are. That's the capitalist problem is that we think that the gross number somehow means that the movie is better. But there may be less people watching it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's weird, right? Like, I, I just don't understand. Uh, there must be a different metric. So or someone needs to come up with a different metric to quantify whether a film is in fact reflective of something important in art. Nobody cares because... You know, there is a machine underneath it. It costs a lot of money to make. But Maybe the machine can figure this out because there has to be a formula you could make of like average ticket price per number of tickets sold over population of wherever that US or, or North yeah. America. And it would give you a number and then you could basically yeah. rank them. It's kind of ratio. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's a hard, hard thing to quantify because there are other pressures too, right? I mean, there's political pressures and like we're seeing uh, movies getting banned because two women are kissing in a fucking animation movie. Like right. there's a lot of different things that are happening um, that will change what these numbers reflect. But and, yeah. And viewing habits change. Like in the eighties, the big yeah. viewing habit that was changed is what was as much as, yes, people are still going to theaters, you kind of knew instinctively that, well, within eight months, this is going to be on home video and I can purchase this and watch yes. it as many times as I want to, if that's what I choose to do. Yes, I will go and watch Empire Strikes Back up on the big screen, but I can probably wait to watch The Last Unicorn when it comes on home video and I can either rent it or yeah. I can go and buy it. That's how I felt about Thor. And just kind of speaking about this, this is why I kind of put more weight in how streaming services now talk about total number of views. The only asterisks the caveat is did people how they it? define well yeah how do they define a view like if you just turn it off turn turn on yeah. turn it off i don't that, know that's what i mean like because on uh, youtube a view is considered five seconds or longer right right and i'm sure netflix uses the same metric i prefer to wait eight months to listen to this show i just wanted to say that like there's the, the history of animation actually really fascinates me and this kind of goes back to my puppet thing from a few weeks ago there is value put into American animation. I think Pixar has shown that adult audiences and, and children audiences will come to watch those films sure. and are beloved by many. Disney is making their own stuff as well from their own animation studios. Sony has their animation division. Netflix now has an animation division. Apple just said they're going to have an animation division, which means, by the way, I should say, Netflix and Apple are just buying stuff that other people are making yeah. <laughs> and putting onto their services. But still, they, they see that there is value in, in animation. And yet, I wish there was someone who would be like, can we make something? Nobody cares about puppets. Nobody cares. No, about, you gotta saying, let that okay, go. Yeah, 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 yeah. You gotta let saying, the puppets go. I'm letting the puppets go. I'm just saying from an animation standpoint, could there be, I, 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 and I'm not saying like super popular, like billions and billions of dollars, but there has to be a niche that's there 
that takes a look at the example of anime from Japan or some of the animation that comes out of France and that sort of thing and be like, we as Americans can make animation that is primarily made for adults. Because especially there's when you look on TV, when you have Simpsons and Family Guy and that type of stuff. No, there's, that is there's adult so much. Oriented that you can make a film that would also be adult oriented. And I'm not talking about nudity or excessive no, violence. No, there's just, so many. There's so many. I mean, I, I'm now that I said so many, I, I'm struggling off the top of my head. But there are a lot of particularly smaller release animated movies that are political or documentary. But made are, in America? Yes. And mm. there, are, um, there are films uh, by American studios anyways that bridge these things. They're not popular because the other problem I think with our culture is... And this is a capitalist thing is we become jaded about how we're supposed to use our time. Helen does some business coaching for some would-be uh, entrepreneurs and they have this instinct in America to leave a 40 to 60 hour a week job to work for themselves, but they feel like they have to work at least 60 hours a week no matter what, which is yeah. insane. Right? I mean, the whole reason you're leaving is not because of one person is a shitty boss. It's because it's unsustainable, in my opinion, to sit in a fucking chair eight and a half to 10 hours a day. It's sick. But that's, I think, one of the problems is when you come to this idea and you go to an adult and you're like, there's a really cool film asking some metaphysical and existential questions and it's animated. They're like, well, I've only given myself two or three hours. I, I think I should watch Thor Love and Thunder because that's a popular film as opposed to kind of putting on something indie. I mean, I don't know. We talked about this with indie film companies. They're still making good films. You watch a lot of them. You just watched, uh, what's that horror movie about the cabin or the B&B? Barbarian. Yeah. A couple, maybe last year, you're talking about how big studios are going to kill independent filmmaking. It's not. It, it's just not happening. It's not. I think there's a misrepresentation, a little bit of my point. But um, regardless, I guess I'm just so enamored a little bit by what other countries are able to do. When you have, mm. again, Japan making something like Three Tokyo Godfathers or Paprika or uh, Cowboy Bebop, which span genres and emotions and are using animation in such beautiful ways. Demographics and yeah. But they're not being like, this is also a kid's movie that you're going to bring your kids to. I just kind of want something like that. Whether it is by Pixar, Disney or whatever. I'm just trying. It's like, hey, leave the kids at home. This is an adult Disney story. Disney Pixar could never do it. Yeah. Probably. Yeah, I, again, I think it has to be like yeah. an, a third party studio that comes in. It's like, hey, we're... We're focusing on this market specifically. We're going to tell engaging stories, but are not meant for kids necessarily. Uh, that's all I'm saying. I think animation can be used for so many different things. I don't look at it as animation as a genre. It is a way to tell a story, but it's not a genre. You're getting a little animated talking about this. Talking about uh, history here, though, let's talk about the history of this film. This opened up on November 19th, 1982. It's rated 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd, 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb. Has a 70 on Metacritic and on Rotten Tomatoes from 22 critics, it's at a 73%. And from 50,000 plus users, it has an 86%. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray, currently available to purchase or rent on iTunes. And in Canada, you can stream it on Tubi. Another big uh, Tubi. plus for Tubi. I don't know what its budget was, but it did make $6.5 million at the box office, which is about $20 million if you adjust it for inflation today. Its plot description is a beautiful unicorn sets out to learn if she truly is the last of her kind in this sparkling animated musical. Is it considered a musical? Calling it a musical might be a little bit overblown, yeah. but okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask, the musical is a bit of a stretch. bit of a stretch. Yeah. It's our time to play everyone's favorite game of Guess yes. That yes. Tag. 
this one I get to don my nice little Bob Barker blazer. I get to use my long microphone here. And you know, Dave, when you walk into a theater, maybe you have been invited to see The Invitation. The Invitation uh, with vampires and stuff like that that's currently playing in theaters. And when you walk into the movie theater, you see this huge row of movie posters with these beautiful graphics. And there's just a line, a, a bit of text there that's there to help entice you to go and watch this movie. There was a tagline for The Last Unicorn. You have to decide which one of these is real and which of the other two are completely made up by me. So what's the tagline for this movie? The beloved novel is now going to be a wonderful movie. Is it, there's magic in believing? Or is it, being the last doesn't mean being insignificant? <laughs> definitely not three um i hope not what was the first one again uh the beloved novel is now going to be a wonderful uh, movie i don't know i'll go with, i'll go with two i think i've been answering two on like consistency at some point i'm gonna get one of these right well no. that day is today yes, yes. there's magic in yes. believing and there is there is this stars mia farrow as the unicorn jeff bridges as prince air or that's wrong oh my god prince ear or ire or something yeah. like that anyways whatever it's Alan Arkin as Schmendrick, Tammy Grimes as Maldi Grew, Christopher Lee as King Haggard, and Angela Lansbury as Mummy Fortuna. Anything else you want to say about these actors? No, we've covered a lot of them. And uh, Alan Arkin, I don't yeah. know, has. I, I, really, I really like to look at the history of Alan Arkin. I don't know if he's technically broken out yet. He was big on Broadway during the 70s and 80s. That I know. Nice. And then I also don't know if Mia Farrow was married to Woody Allen yet. I think so. Yeah. Oh, Alan Arkin is an EGOT? What's the latest thing? I mean, he was in Little Miss Sunshine, Argo. I don't know if he's getting old. He's, he's Oh, he's very old. old. What did he do right before this? Oh, he was in Minions, The Rise of Gru. Ugh. But if you go back to <laughs> the 80s, what was he doing? <laughs> well, he did Gru, so it doesn't matter. He's still with it. Yeah, not, I don't recognize it. He was in Edward Scissorhands, 1990. But yeah. the 80s, not a lot. Yeah, and then Jeff Bridges was well on his way because he was also in tron this same year yeah that's right. right but he from the last picture show had been in a bunch of stuff yeah the whole family is already quite a big actually uh, and his father was in airplane too so we've yeah, seen the family Lloyd. here we, we're just waiting for a bow bridges film yeah where's the bow bridges to show up <laughs> the cinematography there isn't really a cinematography necessarily in an animated movie at least not hand-drawn animation so i'm going with the animation director which was uh Ketuhisa yamada his top four on imdb are this movie and then a bunch of television so you have he, he was the director of a bunch of episodes of a gotcha man from 1972 Record of the Lotus War from 1990 and Genesis Climber Mospiada from 1983. Any of those TV no. shows mean anything to you? No. Written by Peter S. Beagle, based on the novel of the same name, written by him, and directed by Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass. Arthur and Jules. So start with the book. It was written by Peter S. Beagle, born in the Bronx, and he was inspired by The Wind in the Willows, in part at least, to become a writer. Publishes his first book at 19, and then followed that up with a memoir, and then The Last Unicorn. Um, it took Beagle about two years to complete it. At first, it was set in a modern day. It included these demons that were like following the unicorn, but of course, was reworked into what we know as today. He actually was scared for a while that he had inadvertently ripped off The Colt from Moon Mountain by Dorothy P. Lathrop. Not familiar with the book, but that is something that people write about, that there's some similarities between the two. But anyways, he rereads that, feels safe that this is an original story. The Last Unicorn, the book, 
as I have mentioned already, is this seminal fantasy book, often on lists of the best fantasy books of all time. Reading through the plot, there are some like very minor differences between the book and the movie, but on the whole, what you see on screen is what happens in the uh, what you see in the movie is what happens in the book. The biggest change being there's a whole subplot of them visiting this town and meeting a bunch of people there that they completely take out. The book comes out well-reviewed, sells well. It's one of those rare examples that at the time and even now, its esteem is basically the same, that people enjoy it. So of course, because it's popular, producers want to make a movie out of it. The studios behind the Peanuts specials on TV, nice. the Charlie Brown specials, come first. And they're like, we want to do this. And Beagle's like not convinced that they're the right people to adapt this. <laughs> First off, first, Snoopy cannot be in this film. And no, like, no, well, no, no, no. It's a but non-negotiable. I think it would have worked better if the <laughs> if the unicorn just went. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Seems to take a bit a long time to kind of find the right studio, but he actually becomes a screenwriter for a time. He is the person who writes the uh, Lord of the Rings animated movie, so the one that Ralph Bakshi directs, but not the one that Rankin and Bass have a part of. He knows he wants it to be animation, though. He says, "I think animation is the only way to go to adapt this story effectively." I would agree with him in 1982. I don't know if you could make a unicorn movie. Even now, it's hard to put a horn on a horse. I mean, they, they talk about it when she's captured. Yeah. Right? You can't glue a horn on a horse and be like, yes, I get it. I get it. Look, it it would just be stupid. a CGI creation at this point nowadays. But mm-hmm. uh, So Income, Rankin, and Bass, they are, of course, known for their Christmas specials. They'd just begun getting into feature film work more aggressively, having just adapted The Hobbit and Return of the King. And once the deal is signed, Rankin and Bass write the script and dialogue, but the animation is given to Topcraft, which is located in Tokyo. And uh, we have known that that would eventually turn into Studio Ghibli after some uh, revisions happened. Movie comes out, doesn't do amazing business, but is positively reviewed. But the response also isn't that rapturous. It's kind of kind of a middling response is really what it was at the time. But they definitely found a home on home video. That's where kind of like the cult nature of this movie comes into play. Since then, though, just as far as like cultural relevance since that time, Beagle did write a sequel called Two Hearts, which was released in 2005. He has since written a handful of short stories that are set in the same universe, and a third book that focuses on Schmendrick. Uh, he's still alive, I should point out. He's a, he's not, uh, he's still with us. There was also a limited-run comic book based on The Last Unicorn, a live-action film that was announced in 2006 from Continent Films, uh, but that seems to have fallen through. In 1988, there was a stage adaptation of the book, and now... There are rumblings that another try at making this a live action version is in the works. So Harry Styles. What's that? With Harry Harry Styles as the unicorn. Actually, people would buy that. You know, it occurred to me while we were uh, kind of going through this. One idea that I really liked is this classic fantasy thing about the loss of innocence and the corruption of human experience. And, you know, that final scene where she's like, I don't know if I can actually be a capital U unicorn now because mm-hmm. I've learned regret uh, yes. and love. Yeah, yeah. Now, that, I mean, this is what makes good books, man. Like, it's not it's not a boy adventure, stereotypically, where you just go and stab someone and you go home and, you know, you have big muscles. Like, there's a lot of fascinating emotional uh, themes here about what it means to be isolated and how this adventure comes from uh, this compassion and uh, wanting to discover what happened to your family and then as soon as she transforms into a person we get that great uh, self-reflection of what it means to be human and what it means to fall in love you know that part's quite good Uh, again i didn't turn the movie off i think there's a lot of there's a lot of depth to the writing 
Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that that's the part that I maybe identified with the most. It's also, weirdly enough, a main plot in the book version of The Secret of Nim. And you can maybe even make the, the case that it's also sort of the Dark Crystal. There are things that happen in your life that once they happen, there really is no going back. That can of worms has been opened up and now you've been shown like, I can't just forget that this thing happened. I can move on from it, but like I can always, I'm always going to remember that this thing happened. And her struggle with that is like, hey, like, I can't be just a unicorn anymore because I know what it feels like to be a human is I think a lot of times too, as people grow up, especially from kids into teenagers, into young adults, you learn things or experience things. And it is that threshold moment. It's like, well, <laughs> I can't go back to being just a kid. I can't go back to this feeling anymore because I've seen what it is like on the other side for good and bad in certain cases. I'm always excited to show people the bad. I think we like to characterize those things, the like coming of age and having these big crises. But I'm, I might even posit that every experience is like that. Mm -hmm. You know, all of human experience is cumulative. And, you know, watching my son grow up, it's fascinating. Like, even if he plays one level of video game, it's etched in his memory and you end up building your next decision-making on even the most minute details of what you've gone through. I think that awareness is lost in so much script writing. And we see, I think that might be one of the underlying problems with movies we don't identify with. You know, if you do have something that's super on the surface and some guy comes out and they just smash their face against a wall and then leave the screen, it leaves you feeling a little bit empty because you don't know if you're better for it or not. And well, um, this movie is very good for that. Yeah. To, to make an analogy to the biggest movie franchise in the world, going to the MCU, Leaving my feelings for current films out of the way, if we kind of go back to that first run for the first few years. First phase. Phase first one. Fa actually, it was technically the first two phases I want to talk about. But <laughs> there is such a pushback amongst fans for Iron Man 3, which was, I think, came right which after the Avengers. Which one's three? Three is where... He basically spends a lot of time in that town with the little kid. Oh, with the boy. Okay. With the boy yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. This is my unpopular opinion amongst MCU fans. I think Iron Man 3 is better than two. Is better than two. Like by yeah. far is better than Absolutely. two. Absolutely. But part of the reason is, is like, oh, they actually carried over character development from the Avengers because he's dealing with PTSD to such a degree that he's trying that's to right. run away and trying to yeah. hide himself because he just saw the end of the world flash before yeah. his eyes. I was like, oh my God, that's really cool. And all the criticism I see is like, mm, I don't like it that he's not like super Punching Iron Man. Like, in the face, like yeah. He's dealing with demons. And he is like, well, yeah, because he just he just like had this traumatic experience. And I think when I think back on the stuff that I like the most, it is that type of fiction where it's like this thing has happened. And now I have to actually grapple with it. I have to actually contend with this thing that has changed in my life. If we're watching a good story, the protagonist should never be the same person at the end that they right. were at the beginning. And I think that's another problem with the shitty writing we're seeing, particularly in these franchises. You know, I, I think I liked, let's say, Fast and the Furious. Five is this watershed moment where everybody's broken at that point. You know, right. you don't just have a bunch of guys running around fast cars and having sex with hot women. Like they're just, they're all struggling with identity. And then after that film, it goes the other way where everybody's exactly the same. Right. And you, they're impervious. MCU is doing that right now and it's a hard thing to grapple with without making things too melodramatic you know does someone have to see their family die in front of them to become powerful uh, I know I would say in story writing maybe yes I have no idea like I, I we need someone smart enough to analyze the nature of literature I mean you might know better than I do because you studied English as well but you know storytelling may need that kind of drama to keep us focused on it but the core principle should always be like even if you watch Step Brothers or something, people should be different. 
at the end of 90 minutes of barf and poo jokes, right? You know, I miss that. I think I look for that subconsciously, that I want that to happen and not in a superficial way. Like, this is why most rom-coms bother me because, you know, this Prince Charming shit, like as soon as I can get this kiss, we're better for it. I mean, that's some surface level stuff and I can't handle it. But some of them, they actually tackle trying- How much do you suffer in this relationship? Of course. But uh, well, how much and uh, for what reason? We're, I text you, I can't watch She-Hulk anymore. She's the most obnoxious character ever written. She learns nothing from every adventure and she just becomes more and more neurotic and self, uh, self-centered self and superficial. And so, uh, I think that's the kind of thing, you know, you, that, going back to The Last Unicorn, watching Alphacia, whatever the fuck, uh, whatever the horse's name is, yeah. unicorn, sorry, she's not a horse offensive. Oh no, sorry, Erethea. Sorry, I said the wrong name. I think it's Erethea. Watching it or their or her journey uh, from being this sentient but sort of um, detached, ethereal, immortal being and then having to get thrust into depression, frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's just standing out there waiting to die, staring at the ocean as a human being, giving up uh, to kind of having to be brought back to save, like face her fear and save the save the colony of seahorses at that point. Um, uh, yeah, the story's corns. there. Sorry. The story's there. The story's there. Yeah, it's all, and, it's all there. Uh, um, and that really worked for me. And it didn't work yeah. for you, but that's okay. Well, two last things. Well, Apparently there are dodos in the forest. Did you notice that? When she's running no. away the first time, there's like dodo birds. That I, are I just, just saw the lazy bears. And yeah, there's that's the bears. All I focused and there's like on. dodos, yeah. like right on, behind the yeah. bears. And uh, continuing our thing with weird things with rats this season, um, they're eating rat soup. Well, at Gross. least you don't see them. <laughs> well, they are, they're gross by The dodos teeth. are right there. Why don't you just go kill the dodos? <laughs> and they weren't, they weren't happy about it either, were they? No. That was also kind of a neat little uh, jibe at the Robin Hood, you know, like mm-hmm. talking about fantasy and reality, how they're kind of realistic, what Robin Hood would have actually been like well, had they been bandits in the wood. Yeah. What a what a comment even on our own times where the people who are in the forest would rather run after an illusion of something of their youth, of their nostalgia, <laughs> rather than try and survive in the real world. Just make America great again. We're done here. Well, the machine has said that we have to wrap things up here. So let's get into Critics' Choice, what the critics thought at the time that this movie was released. Weirdly, Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael both did not review this movie from what I could see. So I went to Rotten Tomatoes this time, and there's like a sentence that it kind of encapsulates the review that they put onto there. So for a positive review, this is Alex McLevy from the AV Club, who writes, The Last Unicorn will endure as a film for reasons both intellectual and aesthetic. It's full of rich ideas and revisions of outdated sexist stereotypes, and thereby feels more modern than many animated classics. Kirk Honeycutt of the Escondido <laughs> Times Advocate is the negative review. Okay. My guess is that The Last Unicorn falls into a dangerous no man's land. Its storyline is too uninvolving for children, and the animation too unsophisticated to intrigue adults. But we should answer the question that we always ask each and every week. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? What do you say, Dave? I mean, uh, visually, I don't think it holds up very well uh, in spite of itself. But uh, I think it does spur some intriguing conversation, particularly if you're a fantasy sci-fi nerd. So, yeah, I'll I'll say that it holds up from a narrative and story perspective. But as a visual package, I mean, it's it definitely shows a lot of its seams. So, yeah, yeah, it definitely is one of those things. It's, I guess, kind of in a way like black and white films or even silent films where there is a bit of a barrier to entry for many people. But I think you're right. I think that the storyline is enough to sustain 
interest for, for many people. So I'm going to say yes and yes in this regard this week. But uh, while we do need to rate this film, before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release videos on our YouTube channel, so you can go check us out over there. If you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, what are you going to give out of five to The Last Unicorn? Yeah, I was kind of a bit lower than this, but we've spent a lot of time doing what we advertise that we do. Talk about, about the themes. Movie, the themes, not really the, yeah, the movie yeah. itself. So, yeah. uh, I'm going to go with a three. Okay. I was a little bit more cynical when I first finished the film. Again, not because I didn't enjoy it, but it was pretty distracting visually. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I think three is fair. You just sync the voices a little bit better. Put them in the same room. This thing could have been a a big one, a big one, a classic. Well, as you already uh, ruined, I'm giving this movie a four. You ruined it. Why even write the review until we finish recording the fucking podcast? I believe I'll forget. So that is going to average a 3.5. Whatever. Like you don't have a spreadsheet that catalogs every movie you've watched. Mm -hmm. That's that's going to go to 3.5, which means it's going to go pretty high up on our list here currently. So starting here at the bottom, do you think this is better or worse than Fitzcarraldo? I'll go better. I think it's slightly better. Yeah. Uh, better or worse than Gandhi? I guess below. I mean, I know I didn't enjoy watching Gandhi, but Gandhi's breadth is pretty fucking huge. It is. I mean, it, it, that's a beautiful film too. I'm that's never going to watch Gandhi again. That was the only thing. No. So just to just to make sure, do you think better or worse than 48 Hours, which is like right above it? I, I think 48 Hours is just more fun. It is. So I, yeah, yeah. I would probably watch 48 Hours if someone wanted to. I would try not to watch Gandhi unless someone was like, we like this is a academic thing. Mm-hmm. And The Last Unicorn, fuck, that's hard, eh? Between the two. I'm, I'm going to say we do this. I, I'm, I'm going to make the, the bold proclamation. We're going to put this above Gandhi. Because okay. I know that's that we... Fine. That, that that rating is slightly inflated because you were not on that episode for many yeah, different yeah. reasons. So that's the only reason why it's this Co- high well, in the first yeah, place. COVID. So I was not there because of COVID. We can say it. COVID oh, doesn't fine. exist anymore in Alberta. So... <laughs> We beat it, everyone. We beat it. Yeah. With good old Western gumption. So, entering our list at the new number 10 position wow. is The Last Unicorn, right? Below 48 hours, right above Gandhi. We should see what we're watching next week here, Dave. I'm going to push this button. Oh, we had some Scorsese in our lives here. We're going to watch The King of Comedy. Oh, nice. Have you seen a that lighthearted, A lighthearted family film. Just a <laughs> chuckle fest. <laughs> That we're gonna we're gonna enter into oh, next it's week. it's comedy. It's not about uh, a psychopath. It's gonna be great. Yeah, I can't wait. I remember loving this movie, even though it is yeah. a it is about a psychopath. Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll get Emerson out because we could all use a laugh. <laughs> You'd like Jerry Lewis, right, Emerson? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, that'll be fun. All right, well, we'll talk about that next week. And uh, oh, yeah, this this oh. noise from the sun is just perplexing me. But uh, exhausting. Some random buttons here. I'm sure this will be perfectly fine. What you do? You're fired. You're fired. (laughs) 
You eh? Well, you know, that's just like a, uh, your opinion, man.